for it is the precious blood of the Lamb that is able to turn our sorrow into joy. Amen. Bless his holy name. If you were turning your Bibles this morning to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, as you were, chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. That's the book of John, chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, how precious is the blood. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 16, verses 16 through 33. And the word of God says this. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he's saying to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? So they were guessing, What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also... You have sorrow now, but when I see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I said, whenever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. 
I came from the Father and have come into the world, but now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Jesus answered, Do you believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that you might have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning giving you praise and giving you honor for all the things that you have done for us. For giving us your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for taking our sorrow and turning it into joy. The sorrow that the world gave us and the joy that the world cannot take away. Now, Lord, let the very words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight, for you are my Lord and my Redeemer. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. You may be seated. There's a promise here for us this morning that we can rely on just as much as those disciples relied on it earlier. This understanding that our sorrow will be turned into joy in just a little while. We recognize that where we were last week with John and Jesus in the 16th chapter of John, that now we see this first step of our sorrow being turned into joy when we hear the words of Jesus said this, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while and you will see me. This is a transitional verse. It refers to the fact that Jesus Christ is about to depart and go back to the Father. He's closing out what we went through a couple of weeks ago, especially in verses John 16, verses A, B, or rather 4B, all the way to verse 6. Look what he says. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him. Him refers to God. I'm going to the Father who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So we find the disciples here still confused. We find the disciples here still dealing with this consternation of 
the Jesus leaving them and going back to the Father. We find the disciples here still not understanding this mysterious message of his departure or the mysterious message of the coming of the Holy Spirit. But it all hinges on this little phrase, a little while. So what does the first little while here mean? Does it mark the time of Jesus' death until his ascension? Does the words, you will see me after the second little while, refer to the resurrection of Jesus? We see here this phrase, a little while, speaks to the disciples that they will see him intimated even more than he told the Jews earlier. Remember when he told to the Jews back in John 7, 33, and he says, you will, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. He follows that up with John 12 and 35, and he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. Then he goes ahead and tells his disciples again in John 13, 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so I now say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. He tells them again in John 14 and 19, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. But here, Jesus is telling his disciples that in a little while, he will die and then he will be raised from the dead. The first little while speaks of the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. The second little while refers to the resurrection of Jesus where they will see him again in all of his glory. As you go down in verses 17 and 19 of chapter 16, look what is going on there. Some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he's saying to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does this little while mean? We know, we don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and he said to them, is this what you're asking among yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. You have to remember here that these disciples still don't have a clear understanding of a Messiah that would come and die and then rise from the dead. A Messiah that would abandon his people and send another counselor, the Holy Spirit. Jesus knowing the thoughts of all the thoughts and the hearts of all men then and now. He understands that they are still confused. It reminds us what he told us a couple of weeks ago. I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. Just wait a little while 
and the Holy Spirit who comes and will reveal to you all that I have taught you and bring to your remembrance all that I have said and further my ministry within you. They were perplexed. Jesus knew their lack of understanding. He understood that they wanted to question him. He repeats the question that is on their minds and in their hearts. But he takes it further when you get to verse 20 here. He challenges them and he says, truly, truly, which means a truth of the truth, which means I tell you the truth, which means amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He understands the grief of the disciples here. He understands that he's about to die for their sins, and the world will see this death as victory, their victory, and they will rejoice, and they will be pleased. But he knows those who love him, those who believe in him, those who have faith in him will weep and they will lament. At the same time, the world is rejoicing. But then he gives us this clause of compassion and clause of courageous hope. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He understands that later in this same chapter, John 20, verse 20 through 22, listen to these words. When he had said this, he showed them his hand. And his side. Remember, this is Jesus. The disciples are still fearful that they too will be crucified or harmed. They are meeting in a room, closed doors, closed windows where no one can hear or see them. They're discussing the fact that some of them have seen the risen Christ, and Thomas is doubting, you know, I don't care what you're saying to me unless I see him, I see his hand, and I see his side. I'm not believing anything you brothers have to tell me. It goes on here. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Is this not a precursor to what will happen to everyone in Acts chapter 2? That he breathes on them. Think about Think about the fact that Genesis tells us that God, that God took up dirt, breathed into it, and man became a living soul. Here Jesus, after the resurrection, breathes on those who are close to them. Are they not born again? He tells us that your sorrow will turn into joy and that no one will take this joy away from you. Jesus explains here how great a joy can come from great pain. Look at verse 21. He gives them a great illustration here, doesn't he? When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy that another human being has been born into the world. 
This is a dramatic shift, a shift from great grief to great gratitude, a shift from sorrow to joy. He gives them a clear and compelling example. Think about the intense labor pains that are suffered when a woman's hour has come. I can say this now because sand is on her way to Atlanta. But I remember our first child, and we went through all the Lamaze classes and did all the things that good parents should do and learn how to breathe. He, 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 who, he, 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 who. But I tell you, when that moment, when that hour came and Andrew Hunt IV was about to be born, she said, forget all of that. This hurts. Get him out of here. You did this to me. But once he was born, what a celebration we had that he had been born into the world. You see, there's always a calm cumulation of, of the intense suffering that we go through as Christians. Because in this world, we'll have trials and tribulations. But then there's always a joy that comes when we have been birthed to another understanding, a deeper understanding into Jesus Christ. This whole idea of childbirth, it was a common Old Testament illustration of the travail that people go through and the intense relief and joy brought when the Messiah comes and salvation comes. Look at Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 14. Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 14. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? As soon as Zion was in labor, Zion is another name for Israel. As soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, says the Lord? Stop here for a minute. Understand that Mother Zion is giving birth and doing it in an effortless way, doing this instantaneously to this new nation called Israel. The question that is really answered in verse 9 is whether or not the Lord is able to be faithful even in times of great challenge, even before a helpless people, and he proves that, yes, I will not bring you to the point of birth and not bring forth birth. When we pick back up with the scriptures here, it says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All of you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply with delight for her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. Who doesn't need peace like a river? 
and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, that he will show his indignity against his enemies. You see here, it speaks of the future blessing that's coming from the pain that may exist right now. This image of a woman's consoling breast granting people nourishment, the necessities of life, the nurturing and the comfort they need. And then we see Isaiah use the actual words, you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. What a beautiful image. Again, the nursing baby finds him or herself complete in joy, complete in satisfaction in the arms of his mother. We're reminded of Isaiah 40, 41. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says God. We see here that it's underscored with the promise that comes in verse 14. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants how he has shown his indignation against his enemies. What we see here is that when her time comes, that she is charged with despair, but because of the one who loves her, because of the joy that comes after the intense suffering, the pangs of childbirth. Do you recognize that we have been in the pangs of childbirth ever since the fall back in Genesis 3? Romans tells us that we are still, when then the garden fell, that all of creation fell, and that we are in the pains of childbirth until the coming, the consummation of when Christ comes back. In verse 22 of John 16, he says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy away from you. For the last 18, now almost going on 24 months, we've had some sorrowful times, have we not? But those who carry the love and the understanding of God through faith in our heart recognize that someone is coming for us. Someone that has the ability to take all the sorrow, all the challenges, all the fear, all of the concern away and give us the joy that this world did not give us and this world cannot take away. When Jesus talks to us about the now here, he's speaking about an impending event that when we see him again on the second advent, there will be a joy that will overcome us that this world would never be able to take away. 
that we will see the dawning of the new age. And really, if we have embraced eternal life, then the moment that we went from unsaved to saved, we've already embraced and hold that joy in our hearts right now. That's how we get through each and every day. We have the expectancy of a Christ that is coming back for us. It is foundational to our relationship, this idea of seeing Jesus again. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Because I think Paul is making a point here that we don't always pick up. Galatians 4, verses 8 through 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Small g, he's talking about our idols, the things that we have made pre-important uh, pre, uh, in our lives, preeminent in our lives. But look what he says after then. But now that you have come to know God, comma, or rather be known by God. Which one do you think holds more force? That you know God or that God knows you? How? And he says because God knows you, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to become once again. He says, what has bewitched you? What has scared you to the point that now you depend more on what this wisdom of this world than the knowledge you have of me? what I have done and what I will continue to do, that this work I've started in you, I will bring to fruition before the day of what? Christ Jesus. We can trust him. There's a deeper commitment here. Jesus takes him a little step further in John 16, 23. He says this, in that day, the day that's coming, talking about a future event, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. That day refers to the last day, the ends of the age. We recognize that since Jesus has ascended into heaven, we're in the last days, right? Acts 2, 17 and 18 tells us this. And in the last days it shall be as God declares that I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young man shall see visions and your old man shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in that day, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Second Timothy 2, 11 through 13 this is a trustworthy saying. For if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. This verse here, when we go back to John 16, 
and 23 is just pregnant with possibilities. It says in that day, speaking of Jesus has risen and he's ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit has come. And he says, you will no longer ask me of anything. You know, in classical Greek, to ask is the verb erotao. It means to ask a question rather than to ask for something. That's aiteo, to ask for something. But in what you would call the Greek of the New Testament, these two verbs were really synonymous. So when Jesus is saying this, he's saying that you will ask my father and he will give you whatever you need. And he wants them to understand that now he's telling them that the promise of the father to give them what they need in his name, God will grant it that he will implement the fact that their joy would will become full. But then he brings it even deeper in verse 24 when he says, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy would be full. Now this is still Eritao, ask for something in my name, and he wants us to know that we don't now, we don't anymore need him to, in effect, ask him and then pass on that to the Father. That we have what? Absolute full access to God ourselves. And that God is going to give us what we ask for in his name, not just because of his name, but because of the fact that he loves us. Because we have loved his son. And this is the joy that enables us to overcome the world. Look at verse 25 here. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. But it will tell you plainly about the father. Now we see Jesus has used illustrations here with the woman in childbirth. He speaks to them in, speaks to them in a puzzling and perplexing way at times. But he promises that he will give them plain speech as he introduces them uh, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Some people still are up in arms. They say, well, this is contradictory. Look what Jesus says in Mark 4, 33 through 34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them, and they were able to hear. He did not speak to them without a parable. But privately to his disciples, he explained all things. This is not a contradiction here. Jesus is saying, in the last day after his resurrection that the disciples will not have to ask him questions about the meaning of his death or resurrection. They will understand it fully through the ministry of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is going to guide them into all truth. The Holy Spirit is going to remind them of everything that he taught. The Holy Spirit is going to make everything plain to their understanding. 
And we recognize, even when we take a survey of the gospel, uh, those disciples had no sense of what the meaning of the cross was until after his resurrection. But yet John focuses in a narrow way to make sure that all of that is underscored, that now in the dawning of their hour, they're going to see this new order that comes through because Jesus has been lifted up. No longer will they not understand the words that he's clearly speaking to them because everything will be fulfilled. Verses 16, 27, Jesus says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say you, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. If that is not a verse that'll make you shout to know that the God of the universe loves you. The God of the universe that knows everything about you, in spite of you, loves you. Because you love Jesus and that you believe that God sent him. Jesus saying, you're not restricted to just asking for things and I have to convey it to the Father. You can ask the Father himself. He needs no prompting from me. He loves you. And he will answer your prayers. You now have full access to God the Father. In fact, what did Jesus tell us in the sixth chapter of Matthew Call him Abba Father, our Father. The love of the Father is in full view here. Jesus remains obedient to his Father, and we as believers need to remain obedient to Jesus, and that shows our love for him. So now the circle of love has grown. Jesus reminds us, in 28, I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. This refers to the 40 days after his resurrection. Then comes his ascension, his coronation, that he goes back to the Father. We see this great humanity, this great deity one person, two natures. Not an overlapping of either. Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully human. 29 through 30 says this. His disciple says, Ah, now, you're speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and that you don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They seem to be happily expressing their total affirmation and knowledge of the fact that Jesus Christ is omniscient. They seem to understand uh, his utter mastery over everything. It seems to be a supreme uh, revealing of their understanding that he has 
all knowledge, and this has made us believe that you have come from God. But there's still a little misunderstanding there. The Jewish word order means to know. Order men means we know. When you look at John 6, 41 through 42, look what's happening there. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, he referring to Christ, because Christ says, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Now watch this pause. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? That is why Jesus shows some skepticism here in verses 31 to 32. Look how he replies to them after they say they believe. Jesus answered them, do you believe? Before, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. Now, if you believe, you're not going to scatter, right? When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus recognizes there's going to be this temporary defection of his disciples in their ministry with him. This brings to light what we see in Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Here we see in Zechariah, the sword of the Lord goes out, but now it goes out against a good shepherd. And that striking will scatter the flock. That is why now and always you should pray for your pastors, for your elders, for your deacons. Because the whole plan of Satan has never changed. Strike the head, kill the body. Strike the head and the sheep will scatter. Embarrass the head. And the sheep will lose faith. Your faith should never be in me. It should be in Christ. The best of men are men at best. They will always fail. But Christ will always be victorious. He goes on in verse 9 of Zechariah here. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire. Now, this is important. He's always talking about the remnant, right? So two-thirds are going to perish. One-third will remain, but he will put them in the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They, the ones that are being tested, will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So if you are his, 
will God not put you in the fire to test you and to refine you, to take out all the moths so that you will be as pure gold? Isn't that why John tells us, don't be surprised in the fiery tax against you? He wraps it up here in 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me, I have said these things to you, that in me you will have peace. He's already telling you there's no peace outside of him. You know, we love to ramble and say, no justice, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. There's only justice in Jesus. You will never get justice in this world. He says, in the world you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. He's telling these disciples, yeah, you're going to flee, you're going to scatter, you're going to leave me alone, but I'm never alone. Because my father and I are always the majority. And these things that cause a challenge to your earthly peace, if I am in you and you are in me, your peace is sufficient. It's always there. But in this world, it's a different story. Because this world, because it loves its own and it hates those that are not its own, they hated me so they will hate you. Romans eight thirty one through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? We see here in this passage in Romans from 31 to 39, we see this joyous conclusion to the ending of chapter 8. Paul is unfolding to us everything in the preceding chapters. He's letting us know that this opposition toward us believers come from unbelievers, and it comes directly from Satan, but it will never succeed because what? God is for us. He goes on. He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is probably one of the most powerful passages in Scripture. If God gave his only son up for us, how will he not with him graciously give us all things. If he's given us Jesus, what in the heck will he hold back from us? He's given us the most precious gift that he could give. And with Jesus, he will graciously give us all things we need to survive, to prosper. The enemies are working against us, but it will never work out. He says right here again, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. When we come before the court of this world or any court, we are never found guilty. For God is with us. It is God who is sits on the judge. He's the one that justifies. It is God who sent his son to be our advocate. 
It is God that will not let charges be brought against his elect. Now, therefore, those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it goes along with verse 34. Who is there to condemn? Christ is the one that died. More than that, he was the one that was raised. He is the one at uh, the Father's right hand who is indeed interceding for us. So everybody in the courtroom is for us. Yeah, there's a jury, but because Christ Jesus has already died and paid for our sins, because Christ Jesus has already been raised and his death has been affected in our redemption, because Christ Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, that he intercedes for his people, that he intervenes, that he has healed us by the shedding of his blood, who can condemn us? And then Paul gets to where the rubber meets the road. He brings up all those things that Jesus is vaguely mentioning when he says, in this world you will have tribulations, or King James, in this world you will have trials and tribulation. What does he say in 36? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he gives those instances that should be able to naturally separate us. Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. As it is written, or for it is written, what it says here is what? It's speaking to Psalm 44 and 22. That we're not exempt from suffering. We're not exempt even from death. But he brings up at the end here in 37, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Didn't Jesus just tell us in in chapter 16 that the Father loves us? that we're more in conquerors because God can even turn suffering and death into good. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. And then lastly, Paul says, for I am sure. He doesn't, there's no maybe in Paul here. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, look at the contrast, Because we talked about, again, or we did in Ephesians today, that the rulers and authorities were always presented as negative spiritual beings against the work of God. Look at the contrast here. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, so things are happening now, nor things that will happen in the future, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything, I love this, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying God has not even created anything that can separate us. And he says he is absolutely sure that if we are in Christ, 
Christ is in us. If we belong to God and Christ belongs to God, then nothing can ever take us out of his hand. Our sorrow, regardless of how intense it might be at times, if we just hold on for a little while, when we don't see him, then when we do see him, we will be complete in our joy. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you. We are so sometimes willfully ignorant of your word and our faith is not what it should be. But Lord, we ask you to stand up in us like never before even in these these times of great challenge and the times of our pangs of childbirth, what you're birthing in us, a new nature, a new attitude, a new heart, a contrite heart and a new spirit. Let us just wait a little while because you've made us a promise and your word never comes back void. You can be trusted because you always tell the truth. You are the truth. So, Lord, build us up. Breathe on us once again. Revive us, O Lord. Restore us to who we truly are in you. And we will be quick to give you all the glory and honor. It's in the precious name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, that we pray. And all God's children said, Amen.